Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Raphael Javine will join us to discuss how light makes life. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, changes to the global environment require innovative solutions. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Raphael Jovine. Dr. Jovine is trained in molecular biophysics and biochemistry at Yale and did his PhD in marine sciences at the UC Santa Barbara and completed research at MIT. And he founded the company Brilliant Planet, which uses seawater, sunlight, and wind to grow food in coastal deserts, replacing algal blooms. He has penned the new book, How Light Makes Life the hidden wonders and world-saving powers of photosynthesis. And he joins us today to discuss this very fascinating topic for a general audience. Dr. Jovine, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you from my side. It's wonderful to be here and love talking about my book. Well, a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with photosynthesis, but one might not have had these sorts of applications and ideas. What led you to write the book? What led me to write the book was I am very worried about the environment and I'm trying to do much to pull down carbon and remove carbon from the atmosphere. But the messages are so dire and so grim that it frightens a lot of people into inaction. And it makes it sound like we have this inevitable environmental decay and that we no longer can reverse climate change. While the situation of the climate breakdown is extremely worrying, there's a lot we can do. And I wanted to create a book that has a more hopeful message that shows us how in Earth history, the planet has changed dramatically with all the tools that we have available on our hand today. And so I wanted to write a book that's a little bit more accessible, a little bit more lighthearted, and could point to an alternative way how to address the climate breakdown. And we have many, many, many possible tools at our disposal And I just wanted to show those tools in the context of natural ecosystems and in the context of being able to feed people. And I wanted to make sure that people are reassured that we can feed everybody and have biodiversity and repair the planet as well. That's the reason why I wanted to write the book. The book certainly does take a very broad-ranging view, covers the changes that have gone on in the global environment, and appreciating those changes is important in terms of how we approach the challenges facing us today. Correct. I mean, just to give you some examples to show that there's a lot of potential in the world, just the way the ocean is today, it has five times more animals than all of the land animals combined. So the ocean manages to feed a lot more animal life than we can feed on the land surface. The potential of the ocean to provide additional resources that help us combat climate change is truly enormous. And so that's one 
lever, in a sense, one tool that is available. And we can use the ocean in a way where we don't necessarily have to mess it up, where we can de-acidify it and remove a lot of the additional acidity that has built up in the ocean and actually restore coastal ecosystems. And the same is true when you look at things like savannas. By having careful and managed grazing that used to be there when long, large land animals used to roam prairies and savannas, there are ways that we can restore natural ecosystems to store more carbon again. And so there are so many natural examples that we have either not developed or cultivated or are too worried to touch them that I just wanted to provide some examples that show that in Earth history, these things have changed a lot. And they have, in a continuous way, from the very, very, very beginning of the planet, improve the quality of life on the planet, improve the capacity for life on the planet. They have cleaned out our oceans, created our atmosphere, created this incredible biodiversity that we're benefiting from, and found, even with temporary setbacks, a continuous growth model. And all I'm trying to do is point to a different way of seeing the world so that we can help the natural systems to restore the balance again that we have lost. You know, most focus on carbon capture naturally, the rainforests, but the ocean in some ways has been overlooked. How much of that potential has been lost? How much can thing be regained? So it's correct that land use change in terms of things like turning the Amazon into cattle fields, loss of trees, the sort of urbanization and the use of natural resources for agriculture have created a huge carbon burden and carbon debt, and that those natural systems are not absorbing as much carbon anymore as they have. But while all of this is going on, the ocean has absorbed since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution an enormous amount of carbon, which is why it is slowly, slowly acidifying. But it is actually a much larger carbon pool. There's 16,000 times more carbon dioxide in the ocean than there is in the atmosphere. And so the ocean has just an enormous capacity just to illustrate those coastal algal blooms that are at the very edge of the continents around the planet, that are the base of the natural food chains and kind of famous fisheries around California or Chile, for example, or in West Africa or around South Africa, the big fisheries where you get sardines and oily fish are there because you have these coastal blooms. And those coastal blooms alone, that little strip of seawater on the edges of the continents pulls down 20% of all the carbon in the atmosphere every year. And the ocean in general is about half of our entire carbon budget. So what we were looking at was how do we use unused portions of the ocean, steep water that would not otherwise come to the surface and bring it on land and grow more of those algal blooms. And when we started looking at that, what we found is that you can bring about half a million square kilometers, that's 50 million hectares, as much land as is being used for sugarcane culture or sugar beet culture combined, is able to pull down with these algal blooms that we can recreate in empty desert land that has no other purpose, no other 
economic or social function where you have seawater, empty desert land, lots of sunlight around the planet. We can grow 2 billion tons worth. We can draw down 2 billion tons worth of CO2 with algal biomass every year. And so what we looked for is a method of using unused seawater, empty desert, free energy from the sunlight, local organisms that naturally grow in those environments, and then grow them on such a large scale that we can remove 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide every year, which is about between 20 and 16 percent of the excess carbon that's building up every year. So the human emissions are about 50 gigatons of carbon a year, but 10 to 12 of that builds up in the atmosphere and is accumulating in the atmosphere. And so what we can do just with those algal ponds is draw down 2 billion tons of CO2. And that's using technologies that are well established. Shrimp farmers have worked out how to build huge ponds in coastal deserts. They've worked out how to move water by gravity, pumping it once and then sort of cascading it down in steps. Miners have worked out how to filter the water from their mining tailing ponds so that they can remove the silt and the solids. There's a lot of wind and solar power surrounding our farms. You can imagine there are cold oceans and hot deserts. There's a lot of wind. And so we can do this just applying existing technologies. And the book is full of examples like that in terms of urban agriculture on rooftops. There's huge capacity there. The book has other building products that we can use to avoid emitting CO2 in the first place. And it just talks about a lot of these kinds of natural solutions. And if you add them all up, they actually become quite significant. The other part that I tried to focus on, we all know how to grow things. We all know as cultures around the world how to take advantage of the seedlings and all the treasures we're given by nature. And we can regrow a lot of materials by just using the vegetables in our kitchen. Every avocado has a seed in it. We can collect oak trees. So I live in the center of London in one of the oldest part where there's very little vegetation. And we have all kinds of trees that you can just germinate from the cherry pits in your fruit. And the fact is, is there are many things we can do today to improve our lives because it makes it fun. It's good for our mental health but also to improve the environment again and to be not so panicked and not so frenzied. These things grow very steadily, very consistently. They're a good antidote to maybe the TikTok culture. And so I just wanted to offer a lot of examples to show that we can do a lot ourselves as individuals, as communities and as institutions to rebuild our world around us again. What happens to all the carbon that's captured and stored by these algae? So in nature, a lot of the algae get eaten by all those animals in the ocean. But what we can do is this, we can sun dry them. The sun mummifies them. It literally bakes them to the point where they're very hard to decay. And we just bury them in the desert. For the listeners, 
You can look up Tarim mummies in China. There are these 3,600-year-old mummies that are exquisitely well-preserved. We work with seawater in very hot deserts, and the algae become very salty, very dry, and they stay that way for a very long time. And by burying them in the desert very close to our sites, we avoid lots of transportation cost and processing cost and new ways of emitting carbon again. And so we've looked at every single step of the process to reduce energy input and, in a sense, carbon intensity and to maximize the growth of the organisms for the purpose of just using it very efficiently. In, the, in our algal ponds, we've done this now in South Africa, in Oman and in Morocco all of which have lots of coastal deserts. We've done this now for more than eight years. What we find is that we can work through the springs and the summers and the seasons, including the winter. When we dry our algae, we can sequester 30 times more carbon dioxide per unit area, per square meter, than a normal forest can. And so we're very keen on trying to make this very effective on one side, but to also use the land very effectively because it just reduces the cost of drawing down the carbon dioxide. How broadly do you think this technology fits a holistic approach towards addressing global climate change? Let me answer it this way. The ability to grow things is something that we can do as communities. There are many positive examples, India, Pakistan, the green wall in the Sahel areas of Africa. There are many tree planting initiatives, some which have been going on for quite a long time, some which are accelerating now, planting billions of trees. So we don't necessarily need to have an international or global agreement. Many countries can do that for themselves. Many communities can help themselves. And many communities are helping themselves. In the book are stories of some of the saddest slums that are creating urban ecology and urban ecosystems and recycling their waste very effectively for the benefit of the local communities. And so many, many small efforts also can contribute in a major way. But of course you are correct that international institutions, not just the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, various development banks, industrial partners, huge companies like Microsoft, people that are very keen to decarbonize their whole production system, for example, Unilever, that of course industry can help in a tremendous way. And there are many players that can participate. I have focused on a lot of the natural solutions in my book because I'm a biologist, I love algae, I love how they made our planet the way that it is. But I'm also a big fan of any approach that helps to decarbonize or capture carbon or in a sense increase the living space because in those natural systems and in those restored environments we can store a lot of carbon as well while improving biodiversity. One other aspect that I sort of tried to touch on in the book over and over again is that a lot of these technologies create decent jobs 
you can be a forester, you can do, you can be a herdsman. There are jobs that are applicable all over the world. And so the point I'm trying to make is, is, is that there really are good examples of things that are already happening. And the hope was that not just for the natural solutions, for all solutions, that would it would provide a little bit of an empowering message. So I focused on what I know best, which is the biological systems. But I'm very happy about industries, organizations looking for ways of decarbonizing cement or decarbonizing travel or finding alternative battery storage or other energy storage solutions. I'm not saying that we all have to grow trees, but it is certainly a nice thing to do. Startup company, Brilliant Planet, is involved in a lot of the algae carbon capture. I'm curious if you could talk a little about the company and its efforts. Yeah, I mean, Brilliant Planet is when my friends came to me many, many years ago saying, why is it so expensive to grow biofuels? And I thought, well, we're doing something wrong if it's expensive to grow biofuels, because in nature, these algal blooms that move literally billions of tons of carbon every year happen for free, like clockwork. You can anticipate exactly when they're going to be. The fish lay their eggs in anticipation of these blooms forming. So this is a pretty well understood system. So we must be doing something wrong if every puddle or pool, if you leave it unattended, turns green and we can't figure out how to grow the algae affordably. What we looked at at the time was to see where all these costs came in. And part of the reason for this book as well is that the realization I had was that we make it very complicated for ourselves. I used to be a molecular biologist, an engineer who wanted to improve photosynthesis. I was very much a person who loved tinkering with all the systems, but I discovered that whatever I was tinkering with, nature was able to do better. In nature, in the middle of the ocean, the natural algae that are there by themselves without any tinkering work at the close to the maximum, theoretical maximum of photosynthesis. They're extremely efficient in very nutrient-poor environments. And so what we tried to do is, is to apply what happens in nature. And so instead of scaling up the lab and building very sophisticated brittle systems, what we wanted to do was bring the ocean on land, on unused land, and see if we could make these natural blooms happen year-round with as little technology as possible. And so instead of down upscaling the lab, we try to downscale the ocean. And for eight years, we've been trying to scale up the process and strip out complexity. At this point, the company has been able to attract venture funding and a lot of interest. We are poised to build the largest algal farm in the world starting next year with the name of commercializing this, not as a NGO or as a charity or anything like that, but as a, as a commercial company to offer carbon credits to hard to decarbonize industries. Maybe to close, if you have any final words regarding carbon capture, your photosynthesis, and also your book, How Light Makes Life. The book is an easy read. It's really intended to be accessible 
to non-scientists. And it provides a perspective on how we fit into nature as well. And so I just am very happy about the resonance the book has received. It has gotten very good feedback from people I would have never expected to speak with me in a sense. I think more people have a green thumb than they think they do. And so I hope it inspires people to grow more things. We were just talking with Dr. Rafael Javine. He's the author of the new book, How Light Makes Life, The Hidden Wonders and World-Saving Powers of Photosynthesis. Dr. Javine, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Much appreciated. This was wonderful. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.